0: I want to uh, begin my my message with a public service announcement uh, probably more appropriate and needful for the men of the church than the ladies men Christmas is in 8 days and if I do my math right that means that you have 7 days to prepare 7 days to prepare and for for me and in our house preparation is is giving, and I usually get something for my adult boys and my son-in-law. I always buy them tools. I'm trying to literally put together their toolbox for them. Um, And then I I buy something for my wife, Camille, for whom, unfortunately, I cannot buy tools because that would be too easy. Um, Mercifully, Camille does all of the actual heavy lifting and takes care of everything else. But maybe for some of you preparation, Christmas preparation that is, is a joy. You just love every aspect of it. For others of you, it is like torture. And and by the time you get to Christmas, you are exhausted, right? And probably for most people, it's a little bit of both, I'm guessing, a little bit of both. Here's the thing, Christmas preparation in, in our day is I don't think something that we have illegitimately added to the holiday, Christmas preparation itself, I think, is of the essence. It's, it's not the essence, but it's of the essence. So we ought to we ought to prepare for Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ. Why? Because as our texts this morning are going to show us, God himself went to extraordinary lengths to prepare people for the birth of Christ. And as our, our passages are going to demonstrate that fact. And, and and I get it. Our preparations often distract from the real meaning of Christmas. That's why this, the texts this morning are so important for us. God's preparations 2,000 years ago magnify and explain the true meaning of Christmas. So uh, this morning, if you're here, uh, maybe you're not a Christian. You're, you're, you're still seeking, wondering. Let me ask you this. If you could stand before God and ask him for one gift, for one gift, what might that be? mental peace, prosperity, family, health, harmony, th- those sorts of things maybe come to mind. What I'd like you to do for the next 30 40 minutes as you're listening to me, consider whether that's the, the, what God actually offers in Christmas is something that you would be willing to accept. Maybe it actually is the best possible gift that you could be given. Okay, uh, For, for the, the rest of us, uh, Christians, I want you to consider Zechariah this morning and ask yourself if there's anything that you can learn from him. And and, and as we'll see, this old priest is given a second chance to be faithful after a disastrous failure. And consider whether there's something that understanding that and who God is and how God responded to Zechariah, maybe that's something that could be on offer for you this morning as well. So, uh, the context of of, of the gospel is, is is the gospel of Luke, and our our text this morning is the birth of John the Baptist. But you might recall that we started this series in the begin at, at four weeks ago with the announcement to Mary that she was going to have a child. And that comes after the announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're going to have children. So I thought if we're going to talk about the birth of John the Baptist, which is our text this morning, we really need to go back. And so the first like third or half of the sermon is going to be context, but we can draw some principles out of that as well. So, so let's begin here uh, in Luke towards the beginning of the chapter, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke is a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. He was a careful investigator of, of everything that he wrote, one of the greatest historians that that the, the ancient world knew of. And, and he writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to read some passages and then I'm going to comment on them to bring us up to speed uh, before we get to the birth of John. So beginning in verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, this is obviously a very happy family, and it seems that they're doing everything right. Everything seems positive. Priestly family on both sides, both very godly individuals, given perhaps the highest accolade that can be given in the Bible to a human. They were blameless. Blameless. But then... As we might say, the other shoe drops. Uh, remember, Eric really likes the butt God, the ands and the butts and the oars and, and all of those things that we heard about on, um, schoolhouse rock, conjunction junction, that sort of thing. The, the butt God, butt God. Here we have a butt and it's, it's a hard contrast to what we had just heard. Verse seven, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years, so we go from the highest accolade to the worst possible circumstance. To want children and not be blessed with them has to be absolutely heartbreaking. And I'm sure that there are many here who can testify to that—the disappointment, the discouragement. I, I mean, I, I can't even imagine my own life without children, right? Um, And this is what they faced. What's harder for them, if we can speak in terms, is that in that culture, it also carried a very strong stigma of shame and a lack of future security. There would be no one to take care of them in their old age. Children were kind of the social security equivalent, I suppose, for for people. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. We pick up in verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, a little little background on this. Estimates are that there were probably about 18,000 priests at any one time, or at this time, in the nation of Israel. And each priest would do temple service twice per year. Twice per year. Twice per day, incense was offered with the burnt offering. And it was an incredible honor to be Chosen to be the priest who would go into the holy place and offer the burnt uh, and, and offer the incense. And that happened twice a day. And you could do it once. Lots were drawn, and once your number came up, that was it. You, you were never eligible again. And so Zechariah's number comes up. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as he gets to walk into the holy place, which is the second most sacred place in the temple, second only to the holy of holies. They weren't terribly creative with the names. <laughs> there's the holy place and there's the holy of holies, but you might know the holy of holies was where, say, that the Ark of the Covenant was until it was taken away by Indiana Jones and taken somewhere. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. It's important. Okay, uh, so... When selected, priests would go into the holy place where the altar of incense was, the lampstand, the showbread, that sort of thing. And, and so this is a great day for Zechariah. It is probably the greatest day of his professional life. But then that day gets even more remarkable. Look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Huh? Whew, weird. Shorten. Can you hear me? Good. <laughs> Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Apparently, at whatever the the equivalent of priestly seminary was, he missed that day of class where they talked about when angels appear in the holy place. He didn't. But of course, he's never been there before. In the holy place, is this normal? He I, I, he doesn't know. But as with all things related to angels. Whenever anyone sees an angel, they are fearful. And like I, I think I said this last time I was up here, the first thing out of an angel's mouth is always do not be afraid or stop, stop being fearful. Stop being fearful. And And that's exactly what happens here. Look at verse 13. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. I'm going to read that last sentence to you again, just so it's fixed in your mind. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Just kind of file that away for, for moments from now. And of course, this is the best possible news for Zechariah. Apparently, Zechariah and his wife had been praying for years for children. And I, I don't, If he and his wife were still praying, I suspect they had probably given up. That would only be natural, right, as you feel yourself getting older. It was just a prayer request that God answered negatively, and then maybe they let it go. Or or maybe, I guess it's possible that they would still occasionally offer that prayer. But the angel appears and says to Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. He's heard your prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. He's told the arrival of the child will bring about rejoicing by many. And as Zechariah was about to find out, it was not just because a formerly barren couple finally had a child that there would be much rejoicing. It's what this child represents. Now let me pause here just for a moment and, and, and acknowledge that, that maybe for some of you, that would be like the greatest possible news too to, to hear that, that you have. Uh, that you're expecting a child. And, and maybe for some of you, you have prayed for years for such a thing. And um, what I want to say to you is this. I have no idea why the Lord chooses to give children to some and not to others. I have no idea what He is doing in your life right now. I do know that He is good, but I will say that I'm very, very sorry about this. And what we perhaps should learn from Zechariah, the same God, is that we should be praying. And, and if, if I've described uh, your situation, I would say this, keep praying, but come to the elders, because we would love to pray for you, because I'm convinced that God is sovereign over who has children. So I just want to make that, that offer uh, for you. Okay, what's so remarkable about this child? It's Again, it's not merely because a really old couple is going to have children. Verse 15, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel, to the Lord their God, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Probably everyone who's expecting a child thinks that this child that you're going to have is going to be awesome. <laughs> Probably most of us have not had an angel appear to us and say, The child that you're going to bear is really going to be awesome. He is going to be awesome. John here um, John and Zechariah and Elizabeth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. And why would God do this? we might ask. The, the words of the angel are carefully chosen because he's about to start something that has been promised for centuries. And the words of the last prophet on record, Malachi, reads this, Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome days of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Do you see how Gabriel the angel is is, uh, heavily influenced, if you will, given the message that was given to Malachi centuries before? Apparently, the child that Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to have is going to be the one that Israel has been waiting for. And if that's the case, then Elizabeth and Zechariah should recognize that their son is the one who's going to kick off this great redemption that has been promised to Israel. John, their son, would grow to be that man. He would be the one who would signal to the world that Messiah was coming. He would have one job, one job, well, two jobs, but they're they're related. But, <laughs> to prepare the people. How is he going to prepare the people? Well, we'll find that out in just a moment. But a, a, as, if you've read the Gospels All, you know that John, once he starts preaching and doing his thing, his one job is basically just this. Take his finger and point at Jesus and say, that's the guy. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Finally, this is him. And and we know that John did that well. He even started before he was born. Remember two weeks ago, we looked at the passage of where Mary and Elizabeth meet, and John is basically kicking, (laughs) saying, Mom, that's the guy who hasn't been born yet. But he's there. He's there in Mary. This is the one we've been waiting for. And John does that faithfully through his entire life, and it ends up costing him his life, his Testimony to Christ and the kingdom and the character of that kingdom. come. So he would have to be raised in a special manner. He would be completely devoted to the Lord. No, uh, the, 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 the prohibition on wine sounds a lot like the Nazarite vows of the past. This is someone who is consecrated, dedicated to service of the Lord. God is on the move. Everything is starting to come together. Elijah, the greatest prophet, at least in terms of action and deed in the Old Testament, is going to return in the person of Zechariah's son. It's astounding news. This is beyond Zechariah's wildest dreams, and he couldn't believe it. Literally, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, Words that I'll bet he regretted the moment he said them. (laughs) How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Okay, normally that would be a really good question. (laughs) That would be a really good question. Unless you have been praying for this saying for years, and you are a priest of the Lord, and you are in the holy place, and you are talking to an angel... Who who delivers this good news to you? An angel of the Lord who is on record as doing this very thing in the past. I think I said a few weeks ago, God was not breaking new ground with the miracle of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's already done that in the past. And as a matter of fact, like Zechariah is standing there, a child of Abraham, right? He owes his very existence to the fact that 2000 years before God had opened the womb of a barren couple, a barren lady, right? So he should know. He should know. And I love the angel's response. The angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Let me actually translate the Greek for you. It goes this way. Dude, I'm Gabriel, sent from God. Do you think I'm here just to waste your time and mine with lies? (laughs) I'm Gabriel. Quick application for this. When you pray, expect that God will answer. And when he does answer affirmatively, say, thank you. Right? Thank you. Be quick to say, thank you. So the, the angel goes on. Zechariah is standing there, dumb stricken, as we'll find out literally. Right? The angel goes on. Verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day. The day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. As we'll see later, there's some indication that he was also deaf perhaps. Zechariah is stricken dumb, probably deaf. The people knew something had happened, but they're not sure what, because he can't actually tell them what had just happened. He can't explain the delay. It doesn't take that long to offer the incense, apparently. But before, before long, Elizabeth begins to show. Zechariah still remains unable to talk. In Luke's text, the focus then shifts to a very young Mary who's told that she'll be, she will conceive and bear the Christ child. And then the pregnant Mary goes to see the much further along, in terms of pregnancy, Elizabeth, to confirm the words of the angel. Mike talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Mary, also full of the Holy Spirit, then delivers her beautiful Magnificat that, that, that Eric walked through last week, celebrating the goodness of God, both to Mary and to Israel, which finally brings us to our passage. So the sermon begins officially now. Some of you are going, are we ever going to eat? Yeah, we'll go. We will. I promise. Our passage. Let's flip ahead to verse 57 now. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Remember I read earlier the, uh, a couple times the announcement to Zechariah about this rejoicing is going to take place. Luke is very, very careful. He repeats the words of the angel. It happened just like the angel said. Elizabeth bears a son. Everyone's rejoicing. And then we leave that to the circumcision we we leave that moment to the scene of the circumcision and that's where all the action takes place in our text this morning look at verse 59 on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him zechariah after his father but his mother answered no he shall be called john and they said to her none of your relatives is called by this name they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted Him to be called. He, that is Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? for the hand of the Lord was with him. That's our narrative runway. Let's talk about it just for a moment. Elizabeth, obedient to Gabriel. She knew God was on the move. A special child gets a special name. And of course, to us, John's not super unique. It's fairly common. John, over the last hundred years, for those of you keeping score, third most common name that Americans named their boys, John. Behind, I had to look this up. James and Robert just ahead of Michael. But he's going to be called John. And and social conviction demands, at least at that time, that you name a child after a relative. Now, the name John was not that uncommon. It wasn't unknown to the priestly caste. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have no relatives named John. So they think, well, we're going to name the child after the father then. You you can't be serious. John, that won't work. So they appeal to Zechariah. It appears, again, Zechariah, it seems like he might be deaf as well as mute because they had to sign to him. And and if that's the case, that would be fitting because Zechariah initially responded to the Lord's good news with incredulity. His response was based only upon what he saw. My, My wife is just too old. We're advanced in age. He didn't listen to the promise of God, and the first thing out of his mouth was disbelief. So they have to motion to him to get the final word. He secures a writing tablet and writes out, his name is John. The name means God is gracious, by the way. A simple statement of obedient faith, finally. Notice also, it's not his name shall be John, it's his name is John. John. God has named the boy. Just as the angel said, and there was no doubt, there's no deliberation here, John is his name. The moment Zechariah affirms the name, immediately he's able to speak. Again, just like the angel said. What came out of his mouth, this is interesting, was not complaint, but blessing. And we don't know for sure what he said. What follows in the text might be what he immediately said. But we do know the result. Fear came upon all in attendance. God was on the move. And a whisper campaign begins. Word gets out. There's a buzz. Something's going on. What's going to become of this child? Heaven is on the move. It's interesting when that ordeal was over for Zechariah he responds by blessing the Lord and again I would say maybe we should be like that too I, I don't know for you when you've undergone some sort of trial and and then it's over what's the first thing out of your mouth for me all too often it's complaint well it's about time or man that was miserable or, or something like that right The first words out of Zechariah's mouth are blessing of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praising the Lord. We can learn something else from Zechariah here. It seems to me that God is the God of second chances here. And I think this story hammers that point home. It's not the main point, but it's going to be tied in to the main point of this narrative. Zechariah was blessed to have his prayers answered he was told by the angel Gabriel that his prayers and hopes had finally been fulfilled and he responded in unbelief nine months I mean, and 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 note where he responded in unbelief right it, it wasn't off in a desert somewhere it's in the holy place where you would think belief would come a little bit easier and he responds with unbelief. Nine months of living with that failure, compounded by the fact that he is unable to speak, probably deaf as well. This is a lot of time to dwell on your failure. No other voices except those that are going on in your head. The most significant moment in Israel's history, the beginning of the great redemption, something every biblical saint had yearned for since the time of Adam, and something Zechariah had a front row seat for, and the blessing of being an active participant in it, and he responds with unbelief. He didn't believe, and I'll bet that weighed on him. Here's the beauty. When the baby was born, Zechariah was given another chance to declare his faith. And this time, he doesn't waver. He blesses the Lord and is obedient. His name is John. Maybe some of you, I'm hedging by saying maybe, I'll bet All of you (laughs) know what it's like to feel like Zechariah. You've had an opportunity to be faithful, and you blew it. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was unbelief. But the moment passes, and you feel like a failure. I mean, Zechariah, on the biggest day of his professional and religious life, in the holy place, offering incense to the Lord, and an angel appears to him, and he responds in disbelief. And then he's put on the sideline for nine months and maybe some of you have been in situations where you, you didn't live up to your Christian calling. You, 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 you failed, you, you sinned, and, and now you wonder if God would ever want to use you again. Or maybe it was a decision that you thought was good, but it turns out disastrously wrong. And it calls into question your own discernment. You feel like the Lord maybe has placed you on the sideline with no hope of getting back into the game. And You know what Zechariah must have felt like. And if that's the case, then don't fail to learn what Zechariah learned and what he teaches us here. The Lord is the God of second chances. I I don't know what the Lord has planned for your life. But I do know that there will be times where you can be faithful. You can count on that. Young people, know this. Your failures do not define you. Maybe you've had an opportunity to stand up for Christ. Maybe there was an opportunity for you to testify to, to, to your faith in Jesus Christ, and you let that pass by, and now you think, I'm just not any good at this witnessing thing. Your failures do not define you. The one you serve, Jesus Christ, is the one who defines you. And his word is way more trustworthy, more powerful, and it's more true than any words that you can say to yourself. Look at what Zechariah says. Verse 67. His father Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and I'll just pause here and say, so he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to prophesy. What is prophecy? A very simple definition of prophecy Direct discourse from God to humans mediated through the prophet. Direct, So to disobey or disbelieve the prophet when the prophet is prophesying is the same thing as disobeying or disbelieving God. Okay, So it's direct discourse. And, and why would we need to be told this? I think we're told this because we're put on alert. What is coming is absolutely from God. Listen up. Listen up. What Zechariah is about to say is true, and he is going to give the divine interpretation of all the events before and after. All the preparations of the Lord for the first Christmas, if you will, are defining for us what the first Christmas is really about, and this is why we should listen to Zechariah here. He he begins by blessing the Lord And then he turns to the child and i think that's significant and i'll tell you why after i read the blessing of the lord verse 68 blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant david and he as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy Now, I'm, I'm stunned here, and I suppose it's because of the, uh, of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, maybe we could say that, or maybe like Zechariah just learned his lesson. But isn't it amazing when, when his ordeal is over and he's holding his long-awaited child post-circumcision in his arms, I take it, that the first thing out of his mouth is blessing the Lord for what God was on the move doing, and only later does he say, and you, oh John. Does that make sense? He he has got a big picture mentality of everything that's going on here, and he sees God is at work. God is at work. I mean, he and his wife had been praying for a son. We know explicitly from scripture that Elizabeth felt the lack of a child desperately. Remember when she was told she would have a child, or, or well, she says in verse 45, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This this was amazing for her. So the birth of baby John was momentous, but when the new father ha- is holding the long-desired baby in his arms, his focus is on the work of God first, more precisely, if you will, more precisely, the new father's focus was on a baby but not the baby in his arms, but the baby whom his son would proclaim. Does that make sense? God was going to visit his people in and through the Messiah. And and, Zechariah is right, he's he's like right with all the Old Testament predictions and prophecies. The Messiah is gonna be strong, a horn of salvation. That's just a a symbol of strength that comes through the line of David, just as was promised by David by David himself, or to David, 1,000 years earlier. All of this, part of a plan was predicted, and the purpose, Zechariah says, is redemption. And this redemption, this salvation, would be total and complete. Just what any Jewish person of the day would have expected. They're going to be delivered from those who hate them. Yeah, they were all in on that. And we're told all this so the mercy of God could be displayed. We're told that it comes in fulfillment of promises made to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. So God is keeping his promises. And as, as Eric reminded us last week, God always keeps his promises in his own time. He's never late. He's never early. It's right when he intends to keep them. We're told by Zechariah 2, one of the purposes of this redemption, what's it for? Redeemed so his people could serve him, could serve the Lord forever. To serve without fear, to serve in holiness, to serve in righteousness. And let me just say, Christian, you haven't just been saved from something, from the wrath of God, saved from your sins, saved from punishment. You have been saved for something significantly saved for something what namely to serve god fearlessly righteously and in holiness you you haven't just merely been forgiven and given a new start although you have and that's great that's that's awesome more than we could even hope for but god's will for your life is that you serve him faithfully and fearlessly that's what you have been saved for Then Zechariah turns to his child, John, who I take it he's holding in his arms. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah looks at his child and says, you will be called prophet of the Most High. Mary's son, Jesus, he was told, would be called Son of the Most High. This connects John and Jesus together, the baby in Zechariah's arms, to the great redemption that God is about to bring. There's a new era that is about to dawn. Why? Because God Most High has signaled the coming of the Son of the Most High through the forerunner, the prophet of the Most High. And the child would grow and they would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And I'll just throw this out there instantly. I think this is a testimony of Christ's divinity. John is going before the Lord, preparing his ways, and he's preparing the way for Jesus. I'll just leave that there. How is he going to do that? Well, we already know from Malachi and the angel Gabriel's announcement that it will have something to do with preparing the hearts of God's people for the Lord's work. And here's where we get more detail. John's basic task would be to give knowledge of salvation. There's salvation coming. What is that salvation? Very specifically, it will come in the forgiveness of sins. That is one of the earliest and best indications of what Jesus came to do. Moments earlier, Zechariah had spoken of a horn of salvation, strong intervention of God to save. He spoke of being of, of God delivering people, his people from their enemies. And of course, all of that is absolutely true. And every Jewish person expected precisely that kind of language when it came to their future salvation. But what would that horn of salvation, what would that deliverance from enemies look like? Would it, would it look like what the people expected? The Jewish people rightly were waiting for their Messiah to arrive and make things right. They were waiting for the Messiah to deliver them from their enemies. They were right to think that way. They, they thought their primary enemies were the foreign nations that oppressed them. And, and at that particular time, it was the Roman Empire. And they were right to expect Messiah to do that, but only partially so. Zechariah is clear about the mission of his newborn son. John would be the forerunner of Messiah, the one who would go ahead and prepare the people for the Messiah's ministry. John would do so by giving them a knowledge of salvation that was on offer through the forgiveness of their sins. Mercy covers and motivates the entire plan, and that is what Christmas is really all about. The arrival of God into our world, a great light of hope. Zechariah echoed one of the great prophecies of Christ spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Do you hear Zechariah echoing that? Why? Oh, <laughs> so, why be so excited about this? Because we need forgiveness of sins. First and foremost, before Israel could become the, uh, the nation that they understood the prophets were predicting them to be, before God would, would take on the external enemies, God had to prepare a people for, his, for himself, and he has to begin with forgiveness of sins. I mean, the, the kingdom sounds great. The blessings of the kingdom are amazing, but before any of that can happen, we have to be forgiven by God. And maybe you feel like there's more that you would like the Lord to do, or maybe something else entirely other than just forgiveness of sins. Yeah, yeah, we hear that in church all the time. Perhaps you feel like you're fine the way you are, and what is really wrong with the world has really nothing to do with you at all. And if that's the case, then I would suggest to you, you might be wrong. <laughs> you might want to listen to the Lord here. The answer to the question, what's wrong with the world?" It's very simple. I am. I'm what's wrong. So are you. Perhaps you know this already, and and, and I suspect all of us in our heart of hearts, we know that to be the case. You know you need forgiveness of sins. The weight of your own failures crushing you with shame and guilt, and, 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 and maybe to you it feels like too much to hope for. Too much to hope for that your slate could be wiped clean. And if that describes you, then know that your heart is ready for this great work of God. The salvation of God, his offer of forgiveness, is open to you. Real forgiveness, robust forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus, whose birth we celebrate this Christmas season, he grew to manhood. He offered himself in your place, paying the penalty for your sins the promise of Christmas is that you matter so much to God that he was not willing not to forgive you and to do so robustly. I mean, I I, I know people will say things like, and you've heard me say this before, uh, why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, why do we need this atonement? Why do we need a, a, a penalty paid, that sort of thing? But you see, God has granted to each one of us the incredible honor of mattering mattering. What you do matters, and it matters deeply throughout the cosmos, even. You think, what, even those little mistakes I mean, Yes, they matter. Every decision you make matters, and that's an incredible privilege that the Lord has given to us. Imagine if God were to say, I don't really care what you do. It's meaningless. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I forgive you, whatever. Whatevs. God doesn't do that. What you do matters because you matter. You're a moral agent. And when God offers forgiveness, it is not a, I'll just forgive. It's robust and nothing can take that forgiveness away because it was bought by Christ. No rules compromised, no holiness compromised, Every single fiber and aspect of who God is is consistent throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, the atonement and and the forgiveness that God offers. John, the baby that Zechariah held, was commissioned to be the forerunner to Messiah. His announcement was that God's long-anticipated redemption and salvation of his people was at hand, and it would beautifully begin with each individual having their sins wiped away, forgiven, in a manner far more superior than God just saying something like, I don't really care. Yeah, it's all okay. If you're not a believer, you need to know you matter to God, and because of that, your sins matter to God. But you matter... So there is forgiveness available if you will repent and believe the gospel that you hear preached Sunday after Sunday. Christian, this Christmas, remember that at the heart of this holiday is an offer of forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to do much. That is very clear. But Zechariah tells us knowledge of salvation in forgiveness of sins. And we will preach the good news of forgiveness of sins Sunday after Sunday after Sunday here. It is, it is right that we prepare to celebrate Christmas. It's right that we do so by giving gifts. The story of Zechariah demonstrates that God prepared the sending of his son, and a forerunner as well, to announce to the world that forgiveness is available. And that Son, a gift in Himself, came to give us that incredible gift. Amen? Okay. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you, what, the, the good news of the gospel Preached through the lips of an old man who had prayers answered and was given a second chance to be faithful. We thank you for his words because we think we're grateful for the truth of those words, what you have done for us in Christ. As we look back on those events, we pray, Father, that we would not just read over them as something that we have read over and over and over again. But that the good news of the gospel, the offer of forgiveness of sins, would be cherished in our lives and in our hearts. Father, I ask if there are any here that have not given their life to you, I pray that they would respond in faith. That they would take you up on their offer to forgive them robustly, profoundly, perfect forgiveness. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.